Episode of the instruction booklet. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I am your host, uh, and I'm all I'm joined always by the man who brings all of his energy to the gym. That is my co-host, Michael. What's up, Michael? Yeah, there has been an increase in the energy recently. I mean, you saw that I got those like neon pink lifting shoes. I'm yeah. pretty happy about. Um, I remember you post. I saw your picture on Instagram of like the shoes and like was it like a Hello Kitty shirt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Happy just like, accident. I mean, you know, the, the shoes were sixty dollars cheaper than, than than the retail price. Yeah, they're tier L ones, uh, men's lifting shoes. They retail for like two hundred bucks. I got mine for one twenty because of a sale, and then sixty dollars slash um, because I guess guys don't like wearing pink lifting shoes to the gym so it's an unpopular color but i I don't i think they look cool hey i mean as long as they're comfy that's all it really matters you know yeah very wide toe box very good stability i did squats in them yesterday and actually they were really nice so i uh, am happy about it well uh we made it through the new year and starting uh starting the new year kind of kind of right ish uh but uh i guess uh as usual like uh well, I guess, how was your holiday, man? Did you get anything really cool or uh, anything that you were excited about? Uh, obviously, you got some shoes, so. Yeah, holiday was good. I mean, I just did a lot of relaxing preparation for this semester. My semester so far has been a little bit busy, but I really, you know, I don't have much to do except kind of just like apply for stuff and continue working on my dissertation. Um, so I just tried to relax over the break you know i got money i got clothes yeah um, sweet yeah what about you uh mine was it was pretty good i got a lot of neat stuff i got a lot of books uh i got mm. a lot of stuff for hopefully we can use here in the show uh i got some dark souls books i got a book on video game console history uh but uh, i got i got some new shoes as well i got some uh vans ultra ranges uh they're like mtes for like made for the elements so they're waterproof and they're insulated uh and then i think the coolest thing i got though uh was my girlfriend got me a smart bird feeder uh it actually has a camera on it and it will take pictures of the birds and even identify them for you that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's been awesome. I've I've been enjoying the hell out of it. So, and then of course I got like a couple of movies and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been good. Uh, but uh, so did you? Uh, what you been playing or what's uh, reading and watching recently? Anything fun? Yeah, um, I have been playing 
a lot of fear and hunger, as you know. Yeah. Um, I, I get in the server whenever I can and try and stream for people. Um, you know, and if, and if you guys listen to our award show episode, then I mentioned Fear and Hunger Termina as like one of my my late uh, missed games from like 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been enjoying that. And then Lethal Company, you know, we've been playing. Yeah, the um, game has taken Twitch by storm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to be playing Tekken in a couple of days. Awesome. Uh, and uh, I'm not yet playing Pal World because I, you know, I just don't know that I need another open world crafting survival simulator game in my life. That being said, I probably will be playing Nightingale next month because it looks really cool. Um, yeah. But there was something else that kind of looks on the same vein as like a. I just looked at that Nightingale game and it looked really neat. There was another one that like I can't remember. I've been seeing recently. It's like a, it's a survival horror stealth game or something. And I I got ads for it on my Instagram and then I like went and looked it up and I was like, oh, it's not out yet. But it looks it looks kind of interesting. But we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. So, I uh, I've been playing. Man, I got so much stuff because like. I bought a lot of games on Steam Winter Sale, and so uh, I played Tunic, which that game was really awesome. Uh, in nice. fact, I, I streamed that one on my Twitch, and now apparently the the channel network on their YouTube's been uploading it. Uh, I got this game called Scourgebringer that was a lot of fun. It's kind of like a roguelite uh, hack and slash Twitch kind of play with a little like a bit of bullet hell. Uh, I got Blasphemous Two and played and beat it. Uh, that game was fantastic and I got Super Mario RPG uh, I've been slowly making my way through that I've come to realize I can't play RPGs like I used to like I can't just like sit down and take huge chunks of an RPG out because like I start getting kind of bored <laughs> like I enjoy the game but it's like I can only play RPGs like little chunks at a time right now like yeah. traditional style RPGs sure and then uh, recently I just started playing Gunbrella so nice so, how's that uh i'm really the, the story's surprisingly good so far uh and the gameplay is really tight it's from Doinksoft, uh, the people who made like gato Roboto. uh they made uh what was that game demon throttle the game that begins with that demon kissed my wife oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah so this was their i think this this is their it's either their third or fourth game i think they have another game i can't remember but it's been fun. Uh, you, it's like Celeste with a gun. So that's uh, cool. Yeah. So yeah. Well, all right. Oh, uh, now we've kind of caught up on what's going on. Uh, I guess we have like another piece of news I can drop too. Is uh, the instruction booklet now has its own Twitch channel? Uh, we haven't decided what we're going to do with it yet. Uh, we don't even know where our schedule is going to be like. But everything's set up, so it's uh, twitch.tv slash the instruction booklet, all one word. Uh, we might, uh, Michael might stream some fear and hunger or yeah. I might stream something. We might stream games that we're like planning on talking about. Uh, we're not really sure yet. We're kind of in the early stages of it, but we'll, uh, once we get it figured out, I'm sure we'll let everybody know. Yep. Possible lethal company stream. Oh yeah. Possibly lethal company. That'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> we, we started trying out the challenge moons. Those, those things get sweaty. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Well, what better way to start off 2024 than to talking about the 80s? <laughs> uh, so today's episode is going to be kind of an interesting little 
different divergence of our history. Normally we take like little chunks, but uh, we are effectively now in the 80s talking about from like a historical context. And as we both kind of looked into it, we realized that we might be here for a little while. Yes. Because there's a lot. Um, so we wanted to do today's episode as kind of like an overview of what's to come for the rest of our history episodes for maybe the next year or so. So we're going to kind of do like quick snippets about things that went down in the 80s with the video games and kind of just hitting some high points and maybe talking about some things that we can't mention in full episodes. But it's kind of a way to prepare you, like the listener, for how our history episodes are going to be for the next year. Because there's all it's really meaty. Like it's one of those things like the the more you start diving into like gaming in the eighties, it's surprising how much there is. Yeah. I mean, as we get closer to the present in general, you know, the industry not only gets larger, but it gets wider in terms of uh, the range of, of topics that we could possibly talk about. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just slow down naturally, I think, the closer and closer we get to the present. But that's totally fine. Yeah. And this doing this, like, as we wrote this overview up and we looked at it, it helped us, like, kind of recontextualize how we need to approach our history stuff going forward. So... But, uh, but yeah, so we'll start it off here and get going. And as as we go, uh, we'll make sure to include some of our notes this time. We're going to do a lot better about in- referencing all the things that we're talking about to provide them for y'all to look, check out. If you get interested in something that we are saying, that way you can kind of check out the links or maybe see some of the articles we're talking about and some of the information we're pulling our, our sources from. So, But uh, I guess to start it off, it says, uh, so, you know, the 1980s were considered at first, the golden era of video games, which it kind of actually branched into the 70s a little bit, like where we finished up. Uh, and it was also, it was a great, as a time of like really good success and also a time of like really terrible things that happened to the industry, which a lot of people tend to know. Um, but it was thankfully followed by its rebirth and kind of shaped into what we know today. So, uh, the golden age, uh, the 80s began the second decade of the industry's history, and it began with the boom of all the advances of the late 70s. Atari was still being this dominant force in the industry at the time, and as I was mentioned, it was called the golden age of video games. You know, this period of time saw rapid growth within video games and the home computer market. Uh, technology was beginning to show signs of rapid development, kind of like how we know today, where you know, a phone drops and as soon as you buy it, it's immediately obsolete. Um, it wasn't as fast back then, but it was starting to ramp up like it is now. Um, and not to mention cultural influence on gaming was beginning to show everywhere for arcades. So like supermarkets, restaurants, liquor stores, gas stations, other retail establishments, you could find arcade cabinets everywhere. So... It was kind of like a, a, a really like it would have been an interesting time to witness from like the outside perspective. I guess wouldn't you agree, yeah. Michael? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely an early moment of uh, flourishing uh, right there at the beginning of the eighties. Um, some information here from uh, Mark Wolf's book "Before the Crash." Uh, in nineteen eighty one, the home video game market tripled, and the arcade video game industry had an estimated income of five to seven billion. With 24,000 full arcades, 400,000 street locations, and 1.5 million arcade video games in operation. Uh, And in both home and arcade industries, even more growth was expected. Hundreds of games from third-party developers took advantage of the boom. 
uh, and many of them were derivative, substandard, and cheaply produced. Prices were slashed as economies of scale grew and competition became more fierce and cutthroat, and scales continued escalating. Um, and so, you know, that kind of gestures, I guess, a little bit towards the fact that you could say that perhaps the the video game industry at the beginning of the 80s, I mean, it looked so bright in terms of the future that it was riding a little bit of a speculative bubble, um, which eventually comes back around to have some some negative consequences. Oh, yeah. It, um, it sounds kind of interesting because, like, if you think about how we talked about some of the stuff towards the end of the 70s, where it's like the crash that happened in 78 sort of sets the stage for this bubble because it wiped yes. out so many other little competitors. Right. And then, um, you know, Atari blows up and then there's Magnavox and they're kind of like in this war. But at the time, it almost like I, I guess it would require a little bit more looking into, uh, which we'll get, you know, hopefully when we get to these episodes, it's like it makes you wonder about like how copyright was handled back then. Yeah. That, that people I were mean, just like cutthroating one another so much. Yeah. I, you know. From what I've read, it seems to me that copyright was like probably not strictly enforced. I mean, you know, with uh, the Plato system, there were RPGs like Moria and Empire, which were literally just like shameless Lord of the Rings and Star Trek ripoffs. And nothing that I've read seems to indicate that the makers of those games uh, really cared about getting like property rights to the kind of things that they were banking on. But yeah, it was very, very Wild West esque. Yeah. Like anything flew. And then you yeah. look at like so many arcade cabinets and then, you know, I guess with just how general capitalism would be, it's like people start seeing prices and then they start trying to like fight one another for like greater market share. Yeah. 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 So, um, some other interesting, I think fun facts to throw out about the early eighties, as far as the video game industry. Um, this is from the timeline of computer history on computerhistory.org. Uh, in 1981, Joyce Worley Katz, Arnie Katz, and Bill Kunkel co-founded Electronic Games, the first video game magazine in the United States. Uh, initially intended as an annual publication, early success led to it becoming a monthly within a year of the first issue. Uh, the video game crash of 1983 led to Electronic Games renaming itself Computer Entertainment before finally ceasing publication with its May 1985 issue. Uh, so in the first half of the 1980s, we see the rise and fall of the first ever uh, video game dedicated magazine, huh. which is pretty cool. It's interesting to see like the more like uh, the wide reaching effects outside of this, you know, like other people like, you know, jumping on, you know, like, oh, we'll make a magazine because video games are really popular right now. And then floor gets taken out from underneath them. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the 1980s is also one of the one of the earliest academic texts written about video games i think comes from the 1980s totally drawing a blank on the name right now um but maybe we can add it to the the notes afterwards i think it's from the 1980s that academics start really being interested in talking about video games um but you know not not to the extent that we would consider it like a organized discourse just like some some random particular guy was like oh this is a cool thing that in the future more people might be talking about right okay um and then also very briefly technological advancements uh this is again from wolves before the crash 
Um, Three-dimensional filled polygon graphics were introduced in the same year, in 1983, uh, in Atari's iRobot. But the game was abstract and its unusual gameplay was poorly received, leading to the game's failure and a postponement of three-dimensional filled polygon graphics, which would not return until the end of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we looked at um, gameplay of this game, Oof. like, the other day. It's ugly. I mean, it looks rough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just kind of funny because I suppose in my mind, 3D graphics are like a thing of the 90s and the early 2000s. But actually, we've had the ability to do that since the 1980s, since at least the early 1980s. It's just that it was so ugly that it was like, you know, why bother? It reminds me of, um, I have to look at the data on it. There was another, there was a game that was like a part of an arcade collection that I remember playing in the nineties, like on my PC. And it was called like, it was like, it was like tanks where you played like battle tanks or something like that. And it used, but it used wireframe graphics instead of like full polygons that had like information. I think we even, when we were looking up that iRobot, it was like, wasn't it like it produced like 2000 polygons a minute or something, something like that. It was wild. Also no relation to, the movie or the works of Asimov <laughs> just slapped iRobot on there. I think it was like you played as like a disgruntled robot employee or something. Yeah, it just it's a weird, you know, use of the name. I mean, very clearly the name is meant to invoke Asimov, but it uh, <laughs> maybe we'll seems sh- to have nothing to do with it. <laughs> maybe we'll find a working copy of that and try and stream that on the Twitch. Yeah. Just hear our frustration as we try and play a game from 1983. It'll, it'll be like kind of what happened when uh when we did our Street Fighter episode. I was like, I'm gonna go back and play like the original Street Fighter, and that was a terrible decision. Yeah. So and nostalgia is one hell of a drug when it comes to old video games. I think. Oh yeah. So um, brief addendum: Chris Crawford, The Art of Computer Game Design. That's the name of the book. It's 1984, and it's like the first um, academic book about video games okay that's cool so so yeah so we've we kind of talked about like this little period at the very beginning of the 80s it's like a lot of growth a lot of things are happening you know the suspicions that this could be like a bubble and like there's a lot of like money to be made in this this period of time but then of course this all kind of leads up to the thing that pretty much everybody knows which is the crash you know uh, one of those famous things from the 80s in video games was the crash of 1983 this yes. event single-handedly reshaped the entire landscape of the home gaming market uh it was attributed to various factors such as market saturation poor quality in games waning interest in consoles games in favors of personal computers the effects were felt across all all markets but it was primarily in the u.s uh, this even saw a lot of major players from the 70s, from Magnavox to Atari, taking major financial hits that were they were never really able to recover from. I mean, like, you think about Atari as a whole, we know Atari today is like, they just make games. You know, they're a game developer. But, like, back then, they made consoles. They were just this huge juggernaut. And this crash, like, pretty much took their knees out from underneath them. Um, yeah. You know, and it... It was like, yeah, it was mainly, it was primarily in the U.S. where we saw just like a complete, just like clean wipe of like the gaming market. That you could still buy consoles, they were out there, but people were selling them for like so cheap and just trying to offload them. But like, you know, places like Europe and even places like Japan, which we'll mention in a little while, didn't really see as big as effects as it was here in America. Mm-hmm. 
So it's interesting too because in retrospect, um, you know, there seem to have been clear signs. I think from the early '80s that uh, an impending crash was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, brief comment: the book that I continue to make reference to, uh, Mark J.P. Wolf's "Before the Crash," the title, I mean, "Before the Crash," is in reference to the crash of '83. Uh, and it's a collection of essays just about various kind of like topics, historical topics regarding the video game industry, uh, circa like 1983 and earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll do it again here. <clears throat> Mark uh, Wolf talks about the early signs. He says in October 1981, uh, Atari expected around 10,000 players to attend for its uh, $50,000 World Championship held in Chicago, but only around 250 players ended up attending. Wow. Um, which was perhaps like kind of an early warning sign of like, hey, actually, um, we might be overestimating the market and the popularity for these things. And, and we're like throwing a ton of money at the wall here. When in reality, perhaps, like, it's not going to grow as much as we expect it to in this short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a centipede tournament, uh, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. That, that, um, that advertisement that you sent me was just hilarious and just so... <laughs> it was almost like something you would see on the cover of, like, a car magazine at the time. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine... I mean, I, I guess it's been a while since I've played Centipede, but in my mind, usually you have large tournaments for competitive games. And I guess, I guess, you know, the arcade culture was that you compete against each other for high scores on, on certain cabinets. But yeah. it's just very interesting to me. I mean, $50,000 in 1981, you know, $50,000 today, I feel like would be a decent prize pool for a Centipede tournament. Yeah, so, the, uh, like from like like when i used to go to arcades like back when i was a lot younger uh you would have you do the thing where people would put the quarters in the windows of the machine to let them know that you were next and so mm-hmm. like you know that that culture kind of already existed but it like it kind of is like i guess i can't fully grasp my head around fifty thousand dollars to play centipede because yeah like okay i guess someone's just trying to get a high score here so but yeah, like the crash is such a important point, and it's it's so like kind of like when we talked about it previously in like the little or like the crash that happened in '78. It's almost like that crash was like the like the burning, you know, like the the, the smoke in the building that no one just took a look at and was like, hey, maybe we we need to rethink like how we're doing some of this stuff. And I mean, granted, it didn't help that like personal computers were starting to like push their way in. Right. And it's interesting that like personal computers were almost part of the cause in the sense that they were still in their own little sphere at the time. Like game development and stuff like that that was going on inside the computer space still didn't really touch the home console market because the home console market was viewed still as entertainment. Yeah. You know, you, you didn't think of like how we think of consoles nowadays, where it's like it's something that sits in my living room and it can play Blu-rays, it can connect to the internet, I can watch Netflix on it. You know, it still has that entertainment functionality, but it's not the same way that people were viewing it back then. Right, which it, is funny given the name of things like the Nintendo Entertainment System. Right, it's really hilarious to think about. Is it's almost like Atari wanted games to be what they are now then mm-hmm. 
like because nowadays if someone said oh atari is hosting a expecting around ten thousand players for a fifty thousand dollar world championship held in chicago you'd believe it yeah i believe it yeah but like in uh, 1981 it's kind of far-fetched to think about right Adjusted for inflation, by the way, uh, apparently it's uh, $165,478.55. Wow. That's a lot of money to front for a centipede tournament. For a centipede tournament. Those yeah. 250 players, though. I mean, at least somebody came away with a large sum of money for playing centipede. I mean, yeah. There were other like gaming competitions in the 80s. Like, I think there's the, the documentary about Donkey Kong. And then mm-hmm. uh, Nintendo did some stuff as well. So, but, uh, so yeah, so I kind of mentioned it earlier while I was talking about the crash is that, you know, the crash was more like centralized in the, in America as to where like other countries didn't really feel the effects as much. Um, like, so this kind of leads us into something that's kind of interesting that's going on around the same time is, uh, Japan starts kind of like booming in terms of its development. So like, Though the crash was a major event, Japan didn't feel its effects as much, and this allowed Japanese companies and developers to begin to refine and redefine the gaming market as a whole. So this led to gaming to begin to shift in production and design philosophies also began to change. This directly leads into the next biggest milestone that happens in the 80s, which is this random card company from Japan uh, called Nintendo put out a system called the Famicom in 1983. And it's a hit. Uh, It was such a hit that eventually the U.S. market starts to look at it and Nintendo creates Nintendo of America and they put out in 1985 the Nintendo Entertainment System, also known as the NES. Uh, It took some time, but eventually Nintendo was able to basically reintroduce the idea of home video games to, to the market. And... You know that, that those effects are still felt today like for forever you know when i was younger people would refer to video games as nintendo games like yeah it'd be a sega genesis sitting in your home living room and they'd still just be like oh he's playing nintendo like it was it's almost like a colloquial thing of like how like people refer to like soft drinks as coke yeah so, jeans is levi's yeah it's Nintendo Power. really helped save video games. Yep. Power Worlds is Pokemons. <laughs> yeah, Power Worlds is Pokemons. <laughs> People point at a Digimon. It's like, yeah, it's Pikachu. No, that's Agumon. Yeah. Um, I think one of the big things to, to really consider in terms of why Nintendo was able to succeed where a lot of other companies were kind of falling short at this time. First of all, you know, they were in the right place at the right time. Um, But secondly, Nintendo had like an unprecedented, uh, I guess, knack for quality control. Yeah. Um, Again, here, drawing from Wolf. The success of the NES was uh, encouraged, or rather encouraged other companies to produce home systems again. Uh, But the more complex and expensive technology of the new generation of machines ensured that smaller companies simply hoping to cash in on the craze would be unable to compete. Um, Nintendo, you know, they had the money, they had kind of, I guess, the established reputation and the means to produce these games. Um, But unlike a lot of earlier companies, they were really strict about i guess like the third party games that would be able to be produced on their systems right um 
you know, it wasn't like Atari just letting anyone who wanted to come in and make a Pong clone. Um, they were very particular. I mean, Nintendo continues to, I think, be very particular about the kind of games that they allow on their consoles, um, for better or worse. Um, and I will say also, too, just in talking about the crash, that even though Nintendo was able to kind of usher in a moment of recovery for the home game uh, market, that arcades never kind of really recovered from this uh, as much as they could have. Yeah. Um, well, arcade halls, like, aren't it? You don't see giant arcade, arcade halls here in the U.S. anymore. Right. This was like the beginning of the end for arcades as... Um, you know, like popular place. Obviously, I think the fighting game community keeps arcades alive for a little bit longer as far as those popular uh, subgenres. But Wolf writes that uh, the arcades, however, would never recover while they struggled to stay ahead of home systems throughout the 1980s and renewed their lease on life with the widespread appearance of three-dimensional filled polygon graphics in the 1990s. Uh, home console systems and home computer games eventually managed to eclipse them and the arcades all but closed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as you suggested, right, that's kind of true. I don't think anybody these days thinks about arcades when they think about the gaming industry. Certainly there are still arcades open. I mean, like cidercades and like beercades or barcades or whatever have become a popular thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think those those are more of a novelty. Like nobody really goes to arcades to play marvel versus capcom they just buy the game on steam yeah well i mean but then like on, on comparison like if you look at japan japan's arcades are still huge like mm -hmm. they have their arcade rooms are massive because they didn't really feel the same effects uh that's interesting yeah you know like and partly they I mean they still you know i guess it's like you were kind of touching on about fighting games it's like fighting games in japan are kind of like a whole different beast where it's like for a while before the advent of like downloadable content on video games some uh american players in esports would go to japan so they could play the newest version of street fighter before it released in america so they could have a leg up hmm. so like it's interesting to look at like just even like i was talking about like is that with nintendo being kind of the first one out of the gate after like during the revival period that their design philosophy very much influenced how games were made too. Um, like there's this whole, like kind of like the seismic shift. Like, you know, you look at like all these Atari games and you had stuff like pitfall or like, I think there was one that I remember playing called like barnstormer or, uh, you would have like Pac-Man and they were more, centrally focused around the idea of just like the gameplay mm -hmm. and less about the story. And then with the NES, you kind of start seeing that stuff begin, you know, whereas most of the time, like story driven games was more set towards the, the, the PC market. You know, you had these text-based adventure games that people were playing as to where like Nintendo's like here's Zelda here's an adventure game where you're trying to save a princess and there's all this stuff going on around it oh uh, but like you know you look five years earlier at like a you know an Atari 2600 or something like that and it's like you're a guy in a jungle swinging across ponds we don't know you just keep playing till you die <laughs> right but like that arcade philosophy still maintained in the design space you know, you had 
know, Mario had lives and he had a timer because they wanted, you know, their 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 thought philosophy about arcades was trying to get as many quarters as you could. That's where it's like it makes me think about the uh, people talk about the the difficulty levels of like playing an old NES game. You know, and I, I hear it sometimes like I've heard it from time to time where people like talk joke about like Souls games being like super hard. And so it's like, oh, you know, I played NES games and those were hard. And I'm like, eh, those are two different levels of hard, my guy. <laughs> right. Battletoads. Yeah. Like Battletoads was like absurdly hard because their philosophy was this is still like you wanted to sell this game and you wanted this person to keep playing this game as much as possible. Mm hmm. So they make it like the artificial hardness. It was sometimes, you know, unfair as to where, you know, nowadays we see games when someone starts talking about a game being like ridiculously hard. It may not be that philosophy. It might be just how, you know, like, you know, if you look at a Souls game, it's like this is punishing. You don't speak the same language of the game as to where, like, if FromSoft made a game that was just as bad, like something like Silver Surfer for, you know, the Super Nintendo, or it was just intentionally hard to eat quarters and poorly designed. It's like, no, that's just like the limitations of like the design space at the time. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so speaking of like kind of like, the, like we're talking about like the home computer market here um, during the time of the crash, Computers weren't really affected that much um, while they were still affected in some markets. Overall, the home computer market was able to thrive during the dip that the home console market saw during the crash. This led to lower cost of machines such as the Commodore 64 and the ZX Spectrum. Uh, it gave them room to provide a new space for gaming for people. And as well as this is also the time period when you saw the arrival of the Apple II personal PC. Um, mm -hmm. I actually remember being in elementary school and having a computer science class and we learned how to do like typing on Apple twos and hmm. on some days we would get a break and we could actually play games. I could play, uh, I played Moonlander and lights out on an Apple two. Nice. So yeah. Um, 1981 is the year in which, uh, IBM releases the first DOS computer. Um, this is again from the timeline of computer history from computerhistory.org. Uh, the first IBM PC, formerly known as the IBM Model 5150, was based on a 4.77 megahertz Intel 8088 microprocessor and used Microsoft's MS-DOS operating system. The IBM PC revolutionized business computing by becoming the first PC to gain widespread adoption by uh, the industry. Nice. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I want to highlight two that you know because we've been given kind of a brief overview of multiple trends here at the beginning of the decade for the 1980s um it might seem like we've covered a lot in this episode so far but 1981 this is the same year that earlier in the episode i referenced that um uh, electronic games that magazine comes out mm -hmm. um, so there's really kind of a lot happening actually at the beginning of the 1980s especially as far as uh tech and the video game industry is concerned even though you know in this case home pc uh the home the home computer market is not necessarily the same thing as the video game industry which is important to flag mm -hmm. yeah um but i will say that especially in the computer gaming market 
Um, you know that I went down the rabbit hole researching stuff with like the Play-Doh for computer mainframe in like 1970s. <laughs> yeah, the, the episode that we thought was going to be really thin and turned out to be this deep well that we were like what the hell oh yeah it was so i mean it was very useful for me because i ended up writing a lot about uh that that play-doh sort of gaming community in um the dissertation chapter that i had to draft last semester nice yeah so um go back and listen to episode seven <laughs> yeah maybe we'll revisit the play who knows um but especially in the computer market you really start to see kind of the birth of what a lot of people would consider computer RPGs mm-hmm. uh, do in no small part to the influence of Dungeons and Dragons, which um, came out in 1974. Right. Um, almost immediately following the release of Dungeons and Dragons in the late seventies and then continuing into the early 1980s, you see a lot of games that, you know, bring in these elements of you're controlling a party, you go into a dungeon, there's a random chance to hit something. If you, kill it you get random loot your character levels up and you keep going until you die or you complete your quest um and you know this is maybe a little bit cheating this is 79 not quite 1980 um but one of the first ever uh well possibly one of the first computer role-playing games uh calabeth the world of doom uh comes out in 79 and then is immediately followed by a bunch of other games that are really kind of interested in porting the rules of D&D into video games uh, in the early 1980s and so on. This is not to be confused with that uh, Play-Doh game D&D, right? Yes, <laughs> D&D, yeah. uh, which came out in 75, I think. Yep. Well, and, and that kind of leads us into like the next kind of big thing that occurs during this time period is the Internet. Uh, you know, along with the, all these personal computers, among uh, another major innovation for gaming that was built upon by the mainframe gaming in the 70s, uh, the, the early days of the Internet allowed people outside of closed network colleges and to connect to wider audiences. And this saw the beginning of online gaming. You know, and this is this is being developed during the 80s as well. Um, I think you have like something else that was like going along the, like along with this, right? Yeah. Um so interesting to note, things like the internet had existed as early as the early 1970s. Again, you know, having gone down the rabbit hole on the Play-Doh 4 computer mainframe, um, people were playing online games, I want to say, as early as 72, 73. Um, but as you kind of suggest, this uh, more widespread accessibility of the technology kind of has the 1980s be the real moment in which you know, like you start to see online games in the sense of like even like MMOs. Um, and so here I have actually, um, this is from, it's from Wolf's Before the Crash, but it's actually an article uh, written by Stacy Tucker called Early Online Gaming. She writes that in 1980, when Essex University connected to ARPANET, uh, MUD, which ran on the Essex University network, became the first online role-playing game introducing MUDs, M-U-Ds, um, multi-user dungeons, multi-user dimensions, or multi-user domains to the world. Right. So the, origi- the original game was actually called MUD. I think now it's referred, or it's rather all capitals M-U-D. Um, I think it's more commonly referred to by historians now as Essex MUD to help differentiate it from, I guess, the, the genre. M-U-D. 
Yeah, the genre. I mean, you know, we do this thing a lot where we rogue becomes roguelike, souls becomes souls-like, mud becomes muds. Yeah, and we um, we kind of like talked a little bit about this when we were talking about how like because this was all built on the main the, like the mainframe network stuff. You know, people were playing yeah. like D and D, and was it Moria, Ublia? But they were they were all connecting to a central computer instead of having terminals that were connecting to each other. Right, you had to be somebody who had access to a uh, Plato mainframe computer or who could break into a. Uh, lab after hours so if you were like a computer computer science student at a university and you had access to one of these labs then you would be able to play um it's not until the 1980s that people outside of these communities actually start reliably getting to play games like this yeah yeah the the internet really grows a lot during this time frame you know and Mm. then after the crash it's even a bigger idea like i think around that time towards the end of the 80s you get stuff like ultima so you know, yeah. your true MMOs start to like show up and not to mention around this time, we've got like uh, people do using the um, they're using like online forums and boards to like talk to one another. It allows them to like, like sharing of ideas become a lot easier now. Um, this also like helps. This is going to increase the rapid pace in which like how games are developed. Because people can like talk online about like the games they're playing, or developers can exchange information on their games. So it's a it's definitely a big deal around this time period. Yeah. Um. So kind of the last thing that happens in the '80s, and it's kind of like the end of the '80s and like sort of the beginning of the '90s, and where we'll kind of end will be the beginning of 16-bit consoles. So. The great part about like the the eight bit genre was like it was kind of a it was still a large part and the great and eight bit games were still being produced while the sixteen bit generation was still there. Uh, so like towards the end of the eighties, consoles advanced very quickly from the early eight bit version to, to the next generation known as sixteen bit consoles. And I guess to break that down, like with eight bits, you know, you only had like just a small amount to do with. So like you're you're doubling that. And then this led to companies beginning to show up on the scene. So eventually Nintendo was no longer the only game in town. And this sets the stage for the early 90s and what would eventually be known as the console wars of the 90s. So, you know, it's kind of like how I reiterated at the beginning of the episode. A lot happens here. And we're we're going to take our time going through it. Because there are some stuff that are that's extremely important that will come into play much later. Um, you know, there's some stuff that we we even missed just kind of doing this like quick overview. Like this is the mm-hmm. time period in which Doom becomes a thing. Yep. And then that that game itself is so huge in terms of just the impact that it had on the greater like video games and like gaming moving forward even like its distribution model was like great because you know like the first like levels were like freeware games that you just downloaded yep so we talk about it briefly in the street fighter episode but the 80s is really kind of like you know the dawn of contemporary fighting games as well yeah and Um, rpgs like you like you talk about like those rpgs but jrpgs finally blow up onto the scene as well yeah, it is funny. I will say, actually, I think the the game that historians recognize as being the quote unquote first fighting game 
is actually from the 70s. Right. Um, but it looks so different than I, I would not even I wouldn't qualify it as being part of the same genre. Um, but I don't know. People disagree, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's a this is granted like this overview is not completely set in stone but it's also kind of the template on how we're going to approach our history episodes you know we're mm-hmm. gonna do and we even i even brought it up is you know it might become because how how big and significant the crash is it might be split up into two episodes yeah and there may be things that we've missed out on that we're probably gonna that you know this overview episode was a great way for us to like give you a, an idea of what we're about to get into as well as to kind of help us map out what we're doing here right um so yeah even, uh, even if you only listen to this episode in your brain you have a very vague sketch now of what happens to the video game industry in the 1980s yeah it blows up it crashes 3d graphics are awful arcades <laughs> begin to die um mmos yeah. and then some other stuff and, and this random card company named nintendo just being like no nah, you know what we're gonna throw this on our back for a little bit yeah, so, and then fast forward to 2024, and yeah. we have Power World. We have Power World and Nintendo Switch and two players, who, the other two players in the gaming industry who weren't even on the scene at this time with Microsoft yeah. and uh, Sony. <laughs> There's like a version of that meme where, you know, like the person is tilting the small domino and it cascades into the big domino. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the video game industry crash of 1983. And then at the end, there's Power World. Yeah, it's just Power World. It's, yeah. it, it looks like Pikachu, but he's yeah. got a gun. And there's also, well, I think somebody I, I worked with was asking me about it. And they were like, hey, have you seen this Power World thing? I was like, I've heard about it. And he was uh, he was like, yeah, it definitely doesn't shy away from the uh, inhumane stuff that Pokemon brushes underneath the rug. Yeah, that's kind of funny in a way. I mean, you know, not to turn this into a Power World episode, but Pokemon is a game about, like, capturing animals and making them fight each other. So Yeah, I think the one that made me laugh, though, was... uh, It it made me laugh in more like a, I'm kind of sad that this is a real thing, is that you can capture people. Yeah, it's interesting. I was like, what? You could do what? And, like, the person in the video, like... They pop out and they start working like, oh, trust me, uh, they're paid well and get benefits. I'm like, that's just wrong. Yeah. (laughs) There's probably unironically a post-humanist reading of Power World that uh, questions why uh, that's like the line that people, I guess, take issue with when in reality we should be disturbed deeply by like the whole, I don't know making animals fight each other thing to begin with but have you ever uh, had the friend group conversation that devolves into what if pokemon were real and how bad they would be for the environment you know i haven't but uh <laughs> you know we gotta we gotta we gotta hold on to some episode ideas you know yeah. in the future. just be like one of our random episodes like all right we're just gonna get real about pokemon for like a good hour and a half yeah, yeah, yeah. So. The, the the critical theory analysis of Pokemon that nobody asked for. Yeah. <laughs> why does this? Why is this God in someone's Pokeball? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. That's a good little overview of the '80s. Uh, I guess uh, any any closing thoughts 
uh, now that we've kind of talked a little bit about out loud, Michael? Um, I think we covered just about everything that I wanted to cover. I actually, while I have a chance, I do want to gesture briefly back to um, that Chris Crawford book that I mentioned earlier, um, because I do think, you know, as, as is per my interest, it will be interesting to also flag the very slow developments that start to happen um, in the academic world as far as uh, video game studies is concerned. Yeah. Let me just find that again, um, because Crawford has a very interesting quote. Um, Oh, yeah. He says in his book that... uh, He believes that computer games constitute a new and as yet poorly developed art form that holds great promise for both designers and players. Okay. Um, There's a couple of other books that kind of show up in the 1980s. George Sullivan's screenplay, The Story of Video Games um, from 1983. Leonard Herman's Phoenix, The Fall and Rise of Home Video Games in 1984. Um, Jeffrey R. Loftus and Elizabeth F. Loftus's book, Uh, mind at play the psychology of video games Uh, a lot of these are interested kind of actually in analyzing video games for other reasons Mm -hmm. so you know analyzing video games from a psychological uh social perspective i think crawford's book is really the only book that's interested in theoretically engaging with video games as a potential art form Mm -hmm. though his perspective would remain relatively niche even up until the early 2000s. Okay. Uh, but, but it is kind of interesting to see that as, I mean, as early as uh, iRobot, you know, people are thinking about, wow, this could actually be the next big art form. Right. So I think as we go on, I'll, I'll try and, you know, flag interesting moments in, the scholarly uh, side of this history as well, though it is going to remain relatively sparse until we get into the late nineties, at least. Right. Okay, cool. All right. Um, so I guess uh, now that we're getting towards the end, I, I'll uh, kind of give you all a little bit of a preview of kind of what's to come. I know I did that a little bit in the award show, but this might help a little bit. Uh, so next month is uh, both mine and Michael's birthday. So we're going to do our birthday episode. And to celebrate a birthday, what better way to do that than to celebrate D&D's 50th anniversary? So we're going to do our D&D episode, and we're going to talk about D&D's influence on video games, which will kind of coincide with some of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, So that should be fun. Um, And in March, we'll come back and we'll actually do a true episode about the time period before the crash. Um, April is our one-year anniversary show. Uh... So that'll be kind of awesome. The instruction booklets made it will have made it a full year. Um, we're we're still working out the details of what our anniversary show episode is. Uh, it might be a Souls episode, but not in the way you think. <laughs> mm-hmm. we're, we're that's it. We're we're just doing an episode about uh, real estate in the, the Souls universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Uh, may will be uh, our uh, history episode, which will be the beginning of the crash. Uh, and like I said, that might wind up breaking into a second. We've also got a couple of other random episodes, um, but that's kind of the gist for the next five months. So, you know, and uh, 
not to mention once we reach our one year mark, we might start having some people, some extra people on the show to talk about things. Um, other posts from other shows might come in. We might try and get some people from academia, some other, other folks, you know, we're still kind of working out the details the rest of the year, but you know, as soon as we figure it out, we'll let y'all know, but uh, yep. definitely be prepared next month for our, our D and D episode. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm sure you've got plenty to say about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll do our plugs and we'll wrap this up. So, uh, Michael, where can the folks find you? Uh, mackerel underscore prawns on Instagram. Sweet. And then I think mackerel prawns on Twitter or X, though I have not logged into it in probably over a year at this point. Right. Okay. Um, you can find my stuff. Uh, I've been streaming on Monday nights, sometimes on the weekends, whenever folks want to play Lethal Company and I want to do something stupid. Uh, on Twitch.tv slash Backwards Hero. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook for my art at PressArtF4. And uh, it looks like Cajun Greatness is coming back next month. We'll see how, uh, you know, that'll be nice. Uh, as for the channel itself, you can find us on the instruction booklet for link tr.ee slash the instruction booklet. Uh, that you find all of our links. And also be sure to go check out our twitch.tv slash the instruction booklet. You can watch Michael play some Fear and Hunger. or Yeah. Well, follow, us on, uh, follow us on Twitch so that way you can see if we go live at any point. Because yeah, we're both that's probably the most reliable way that you'll know that we're streaming. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll be, uh, we're, we haven't figured out a streaming schedule. It might be random. It might be one day of the week. It might be twice a month. We're not really sure, but, uh, we do know we'll be playing a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, we might play some old games from the eighties to kind of see how stuff is and moan about how terrible it is. <laughs> so, uh, but as always, you can find us on AYCH, the network. We're on the main channel. They just finished uploading all of our previous episodes. There was some issues. Stuff fell off. So, And um, we'll also be including in the notes uh, links to Mark J.P. Wolf's book, Before the Crash, as well as the computerhistory.org and some of the other books that Michael mentioned tonight. So in case you're interested in finding out more about this, we want to provide access to that. Yeah. So... So yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in and listening. Keep an eye on our for our Twitch. We're gonna get some games together and figure some stuff out. Uh, follow us on our socials and tune in next month for the big D and D episode. Yeah, enjoy Tekken Eight, everyone. Yeah, uh, I, I will enjoy watching people play Tekken Eight. I I might I've been looking at playing uh, Undernight because that game looks a lot of fun. Sure, sure. So all right, well that'll be it for both of us. Uh, we'll talk to y'all next month. Yep, see you everyone. See ya.